Well, hello, Ellerslie family. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Dave, one of the pastors here on staff, and it is a joy to have all of our traditions and all of our renewed people together to sing those songs, to hear hundreds of voices lifted up. Um, thank you for allowing me to be your lead pastor. It is a joy. Over the um, about 20, 15 years ago, when I was in my late 20s, I had the privilege of taking my one and only overseas trip, and I went to Israel and Turkey, and I spent three weeks there. And if you've never been to Israel or Turkey, and you're thinking, man, what should I do for my next really big vacation or holiday? It is amazing to stand at the Temple Mount where Peter gave a sermon and see 3,000 people were baptized and how that could have been possible. It's incredible. To sit in the Garden of Gethsemane and to see this valley between the garden and where Jerusalem is and to oversee an entire city is amazing. And then to uh, stand up on a mountain and overlook the Valley of Elah where David fought Goliath. And you're thinking, a few thousand years ago, this took place. It is incredible. On one of the days, we were hiking through the mountains and there was a fence set up. And you might hear those words in one sentence, hiking, fence, and mountains. And you think, oh, well, they were probably stopping people from falling over a cliff. But that wasn't it. So you might think, oh, maybe it was an observatory of sorts and you could oversee a, a distinct landmark and you'd be a little bit closer. You see, on this fence were two words, warning, minefield. Not all the boars in Israel are a few hundred or even a couple thousand years old. Some are a lot more recent and we're reminded that if we step on the other side of that fence, something terrible could happen. Over the next number of weeks, we're going to be going through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And this uh, book as well could probably come with those same two words, warning, minefield. And you're probably thinking, oh, Dave agrees with me on uh, how old the earth is or, or how exactly those first 11 chapters came to place. And so I thought we would play a game together for this introduction. Pastor Joel, come on out for Choose Your Door. Good morning, everybody. This is the game show where the correct answer to the questions are hiding behind three doors behind me. Some of you have wondered, why on earth would I want to be a game show host? And the answer is quite simple. My boss sprung this on me this morning and I had no choice. <laughs> you are our live studio audience this morning and there are a hundred people behind me who are going to answer these questions and they are competing for the prize of this job. <laughs> All right, let's get started. They have to choose the right answer. There are three doors. They have to choose which door the correct answer is behind. Round one, here we go. Do you believe the earth was created in six literal days, six figurative days, or another time frame altogether? All right, lock in your answers. There we have it. Oh, I'm sorry, two-thirds of you got that wrong. We're down to 33 people now for this next question. Round two, here we go. Do you believe the earth was a thousand years old or thousands of years old, pardon me, millions of years old or billions of years old? Lock your answers in. Oh, I'm sorry, that's disappointing. Another third of you, two-thirds of you got it wrong. You're probably wondering what the answer to those questions are. Dave's going to reveal that very soon. 
That's for... <laughs> okay, round three. Final round, here we go. When Jesus returns, is it going to be after some intense time of persecution? Is it going to be after... Pardon me. Will it be before an intense time of persecution, during an intense time of persecution, or after that persecution has ended? Also known as times of tribulation. All right, lock in your answers now. Here we go. Oh man, another third of them got it wrong. We're only down to four people. It's a good thing our salvation does not rely on us knowing the answers to these questions. I gave him half an hour to do that. Well done, Joel. Well done. We come together on Genesis and we think, well, what's it going to look like? What are we going to talk about? Are we going to talk about the age of the earth? Are we going to talk about um, what's taking place? And if there's six days or, or uh, over thousands of years, what happened? We're not going to talk about any of that. The big idea is that God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And that is going to be our focus over the next number of weeks. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy to come here and to hear what it is that you are doing at the beginning of the world. And as we have uh, myself and Joel and David and some guest preachers to come and share over these summer weeks, may it be a joy to discover, to hear great stories about how you created the earth and all that is in them. So God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and that you would bring yourself glory by how you speak to each and every one of us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to Genesis chapter 1. After finding 1 John at the back of the Bible, Genesis should be very simple. It's the first book of the Bible, and we are going to be in the first chapter and the first verse. You can put your finger there, you can flip there in a couple minutes, but I want to set the scene a little bit. What do we need to know when we come to Genesis? So a couple of comments before that. We read the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When we were going through 1 John, we talked about how John was a personal eyewitness of Jesus, but when God created the heavens and the earth, there is no eyewitness. Church history, church tradition suggests that Moses was present during this time, and Moses is the author of the first five books of the Bible, commonly referred to to the Pentateuch or the Torah. We don't know this for sure, but we're going to work with church tradition here. We read this in Exodus chapter 33. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. What did they speak about? We don't know. Uh, it would probably be an educated guess to say that during that time, God gave Moses some of the laws that he would then pass on to the Israelites. Almost certainly, God gave Moses the instructions to build the tabernacle that uh, Moses then would take on to the Israelites as well. And thinking about the instructions for the tabernacle, thinking about the commands of the law, it isn't much of a stretch at all to say to Moses, Moses, this is how the world began. This is how I created the heavens and the earth. The second comment, 
a lot of controversy surrounds the opening chapter of Genesis, and it really boils down to what type of genre do we think this is? One of the authors I was studying this past week said, um, the earth is created in six days in 24-hour periods. And he said, let's look at Genesis 1.14 to back that up, where God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for the signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And when you combine that with the ending to each of the seven days, and there was evening and there was morning, the nth day, we clearly see six literal days. But there's a problem. If you take Genesis 1 as literal, you're probably also taking Genesis 2 as literal. On day one, uh, pardon me, on day three, we see that the earth has um, created vegetation, plants and trees. And then we see a little bit later in Genesis 1:27, day six, God created humanity in his own image. The plants came first and then humanity. But on the other side of the screen, you'll see Genesis chapter two, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So what do you do with that? If one says one thing and the other chapter says a different thing, how do you reconcile those two? In Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites cross the Red Sea. Do you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 15? They sing a song celebrating the crossing of the Red Sea. Maybe not so much a popular, but still an important story. We jump ahead to Judges chapter 4, and we see that Deborah rescued the people of Israel. In chapter 5, Deborah sings a song about her rescuing the people of Israel. So could it be that Genesis 1 and 2 were a couplet, just like Exodus 14 and 15, and Judges 4 and 5? But if so, which is the literal, which is the poem, or are they neither? Part of the challenge in Genesis chapters 1 to 11, certainly in the first two chapters, is is this literal history, is it narrative, or is it poetry, or is it mixed all together? One thing we don't know. But it's not like Moses sat there and went, oy vey, I had no idea that there was a conflict between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He knew exactly what he was doing. So this is not about how old the earth is. This is not about whether it was made in six literal days. This is not whether about Adam and Eve or real historical people and a serpent came and spoke to them. This is not about the flood or about the Tower of Babel. This is about God creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. My tour guide when I was in Israel, this is just one person, but this is what he said. I don't understand why you Canadians are so fixated on the length of time. In Israel, we simply say, God created the heavens and the earth. So without sounding too much tongue-in-cheek over the next few weeks, this is a story about God. This is a story about how God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. This is a story about how sin entered the world and God said, I have an answer for that sin. This is a story that teaches us what the flood means and the promise that goes with it and the Tower of Babel and everything else that takes place. This is a story of God. With that in mind, we arrive at the first point, the existence of God. These opening verses, I think, are just incredible. If you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the ESV. This is the first two verses in the Holy Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
back in January, we had a sermon series called Hard Questions. We talked about um, suffering, we talked about sex, we talked about science, we talked about the hiddenness of God, we talked about what is truth and so much more. And in one of those sermons, I spent a considerable amount of time talking about worldview and the worldviews that we have, whether we recognize it or not. And when it comes to the creation of the world, we have a worldview. Now, people like philosophers or scientists or, or those of a religious background probably reflect on this more than other people, but everybody has a worldview. How did the earth begin? Now, the predominant view is probably going to be evolution, and within that, there are different subsets. Did we evolve from apes? Did we evolve from sea creatures? Did we evolve from maybe some sort of amoeba? And I think some of us would hear that and say, okay, well, back up your worldview a little bit. Where did the particles and molecules come from that created those apes or sea creatures or amoeba that brought us here today? And so we back up and we see, well, there's a big bang theory or there's black holes or there was a spark that ignited or there's some primordial ooze. But how did we get there? For Christians, this is called the cosmological argument. You see, most of us are living in homes right now. Those homes take wood. That wood comes from trees. That tree comes from a seed. That seed is planted in the soil where there was sunlight and rain and nutrients. But something started it. Who or what created a big bang or a black hole? Or did God just speak it into existence? In the beginning, God. The psalmist cries out, before the mountains were brought forth, or even you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The author of Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's an interesting phrase there, isn't it? What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. The book of Genesis is written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew language has two words for create, which the English language does not, asa and bara. Whenever we read of humanity creating something in the Old Testament, it's always asa. We created from something. We created a temple from stones and from precious metals. We created tents from fabric or from hides of animals. We created furniture from wood. But bara is different and is used exclusively in reference to God. Bara means to create something from nothing. God created, he bara the heavens and the earth and spoke them into existence. God bara the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the animals of the land. So when we get to Genesis 1:27, we read the Hebrew word three times. So God bara man in his own image. In the image of God, he bara him. Male and female, he bara him. And so we take a step back and we say, God, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them with your voice. And we go from Genesis chapter one to the gospels and is there any reason why we should be any less amazed that when Jesus speaks, demons flee. When Jesus speaks, bread is multiplied. When Jesus speaks, the seas are stilled. When Jesus speaks, people are healed because when God speaks, he restores the natural order to how it was originally intended. And so if you're taking notes, under the existence of God, we have the cosmological argument where he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. We see a clear picture of the Trinity as well. 
A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that Jesus' baptism is the clearest picture of the Trinity we have in all of the scriptures. So after Jesus comes up out of the water, you see Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. The clouds open up, and the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven comes out and says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The second clearest picture of the Trinity is in the opening two and a half verses of all of scripture. In Hebrew, less than two dozen words. By the fourth word, we're introduced to God, and you may or may not read that and think, oh yeah, that's the Trinity. More on that in a minute. But almost for sure, you think of God the Father. By the time we arrive in verse two, we are introduced to the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And in verse three, God spoke. The second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, Jesus himself, at work in creation. Now, maybe you're a little bit skeptical and say, Dave, that maybe just kind of fits what you want to say, but let's fast forward ahead to John chapter one then. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was a light to all men. Moving from the opening verses to later in chapter one, we see another clue of the Trinity. We see in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. He doesn't say, I will make man in my image, or it would be good to make man in my image. He says, let us make man in our image. Finally, just a moment ago, I mentioned that you read the word God and you might not think Trinity, but the Hebrew word for God, Elohim, is actually in the plural. And it's the reason we as followers of Jesus can say we believe in one God existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Think about the theological robustness of the first two and a half verses in Scripture. God existed before all of creation, the cosmological argument. He spoke the world into existence and we see a picture of the Trinity. So Genesis begins with the existence of God. It continues with the order of creation. Now, my friends, this passage is going to take about five minutes to read, and I know that means there's going to be less um, time for me to unpack what it says, but I think it's beautiful. And whether you follow along word for word or whether you lay back a little bit and close your eyes and just think about what is taking place here, but I want you to listen, to really listen to what's being said. At the beginning of each day, we'll read, and God said, each day we'll close with, there was evening, there was morning, the nth day. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the, the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. 
And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing in fruit in which their seed each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given them green plants for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and all the seventh day God finished in his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy. He's on, on it. God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. It's a beautiful chapter of Scripture. It's also a reminder that I either need bifocals or a bigger prince in my Bible. Over the course of the opening chapter, we read the phrase, and God saw that it was good seven times. And you think that, and you go, oh, seven times he says that seven days. Obviously, he says it for each day, but he doesn't. On day three, he says it was good twice. And on day six, he says it was good twice. And so you might think, okay, well, probably day seven, he didn't say it, and you would be correct. On the seventh day, um, he calls it holy, and that makes total sense. So what day does he not say it was good? On day two. And one scholar with fully tongue-in-cheek says this, even God does not say Mondays are good. <laughs> I have no idea why. 
Second observation. You'll notice that in verse 2, what we read, the earth was formless and void. Some of your translations will say formless and empty. So we worship a God of order and symmetry. And watch this, how the days unfold. This is incredible. In days 1 and 3, God separates. In days 4 to 6, he decorates. So in this next slide um, that you see, I've removed all of the details just to bear it down to the, the bare summary. On day one, God separates the light and the dark. On day two, he separates the waters below and the waters above. And on day three, God separates the waters from the land. And I think this third day would have been a spectacle to behold, wouldn't it? Water, sky, more water. And God says, let the land come up and this rumbling comes and you get the Rocky Mountains and you get the deserts and you get the rainforest and you get the African safari. Incredible. Now look at the parallels. Day one was the separation of light and dark. On day four, he decorates it with a night sky with sun, moon, and stars. On day two, the separation of the waters above from the waters below. Um, and then on day five, he decorates with the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Day three, he separates water from the land, and on day six, he decorates the earth with animals. Take another look at verse 25, and you'll see some interesting categories emerge. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Right from the beginning, we have three levels. We have the domestic farm animals, we have the beasts of the field, which will eventually become the predators in the food chain. Then you have the creepy, crawly insects. And then we arrive at God's crowning achievement in creation, humanity. I know we just read it, but I want to read it again. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. By this point, you can probably see how you could do a whole sermon series on Genesis 1. I'm going to attempt to summarize that in just a couple of minutes. I appreciate this quote from Daryl Johnson. He says this, human beings are created to represent the creator in the world and to reflect the nature and character of the creator in the world. So at the course of history, when kings and um, emperors conquer a new place, they will typically set up a statue of some sort because they know that they cannot physically remain there any longer. And so that when we go to um, a major city, when we go to a, a place where the town hall might be, you see the statue of the king, of the emperor. And for the average person there to look at that statue and be reminded, that's right, we have a new authority. We have somebody who is over us and listen to what God does. I am not going to be physically walking among them outside of one 33-year period. So I'm going to make humanity in my image. So when people look at us, they would see the picture of God. We create, we separate, we decorate so that we might demonstrate what God looks like to the world around us. We create by being entrepreneurs, trying new things and starting business ventures. We write music and books and screenplays. 
We are artists and architects and chefs. We separate. We are medical professionals that remove the illness from the body so that the body might be holy. We, uh, we make systems so that processes might be more effective. We pick up trash and clean homes so that order might be restored. We decorate. We are interior designers to make things beautiful. We help our kids and our students learn what right from wrong. We own stores to fill homes and provide products to decorate the world at large. We demonstrate. We do all these things and so much more in a sustainable way so that our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren might enjoy the natural resources that world has to offer. We work with God creating, separating, decorating to demonstrate to the world what God looks like. Now, we also reflect the character of God. Now, we can't mimic his divine attributes. We aren't all present. We aren't all knowing. We are not all powerful, except for some of you moms out there. But for most of us, that's not the case. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about what the Spirit of God looks like. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, I don't think this is an exhaustive list, but it's a great place to start. When people encounter us at home, work, and play, do they see the love of God in your actions? When you walk through the grocery store, do you show joy by simply smiling at people, showing them what the love of God looks like? Do you show patience and kindness towards your kids or maybe a coworker or a neighbor who doesn't quite understand what's taking place? Are we gracious when someone else makes a mistake? When we make mistakes ourselves, do we go back and say, please forgive me, that's not how I want to act? Do we live out and reflect the glory of God to the world around us? In all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the separation of waters above from waters below, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the land, God looks at you and he says, you are my crowning achievement in creation. How amazing is that? When people look at you, what do they see? Do they see Jesus? Final part, the invitation to rest. We read this in Genesis chapter two, verses one to three. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. One refrain is changed. One refrain is removed. That God changes the refrain, and God saw that it was good, too, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And for the first time in the creation story, we do not have the refrain at the end, and there was evening and there was morning the nth day. It's an invitation to rest. God's creative work is done and his rest goes on for eternity. And he's saying, humanity, I am calling you to work for six days and then I'm inviting you to rest. I want you to enjoy the beauty of this world I have created because when I created it, I looked at it and I saw it is good. Enjoy great food. Enjoy going on walks in the city or in the mountains or going on a golf game. Enjoy the art that is available at museums and theaters and your favorite streaming services. Enjoy that which God has to offer because it is good and is meant for you to enjoy. God is inviting us to work, 
and then to enjoy his rest. How does this point to Jesus? God's creative work is done and should now be enjoyed. Jesus' saving work is done and should now be enjoyed. We are called to continue to work. We are called to continue to work until God calls us home. But on the seventh day, we rest and enjoy all that he has to offer. But we do not have to work for our salvation. Jesus is saying that I have lived a holy and perfect life, that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and on that cross with arms outstretched to show his love for the entire world, he utters those three words, it is finished. Because we do not have to work for our salvation. As Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. And so we get to sit back and enjoy the salvation that Jesus has to offer. This is the creation story. This is the greatness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Genesis 1. And there is so much more to say and so much that was left on the cutting floor of my office. But God, as we sit back and we recognize the power and the beauty and the majesty and the awe of a great and glorious king, may we be reminded how awesome you are, that we worship a God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and that in your imitation, we work for six days and we rest and enjoy your creation. But looking to Jesus, we do not have to earn our salvation but it is something that is freely given to you and that we rest in you. So God, may we, for everyone in this room who is weary and burdened, may we come to you and may we find rest, finding it in the glory and in the person of your son, Jesus. And may we be reminded of the beauty and the majesty that our salvation has to offer, that we will one day spend eternity in rest with you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen.